Welcome to the Period Story Podcast, the podcast where we get behind some of the myths and misconceptions about periods. We chat with women about their period story, their first period, their journey ever since, and we open up a conversation to help break taboos and stigmas around menstruation. I'm your host, Lenise Brothers. I'm a yoga teacher and registered nutritionist specializing in women's health, hormones, and the menstrual cycle. I'm also the author of You Can Have a Better Period, the book Publishers Weekly calls an empowering debut, an informative, refreshing take on women's health. It's available from Amazon, Bookshop, and anywhere else you purchase books. I'm so happy to share my conversation with Ella May Fuller Love. This episode is a little bit different because Ella May has a condition called MRKH in which she didn't get her first period and she doesn't have periods. This is because this is a condition where the uterus and the cervix is underdeveloped or absent and the vagina is shortened. This condition affects one in 5,000. So we talk about how she was diagnosed, the advocacy work she's done to help other people with this condition, and we talk about her other campaigning work around fertility and surrogacy. Hi, LMA. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. And I would ordinarily start by asking you to tell us the story of your very first period. But in your case, that isn't possible. So you have a condition called MRKA, and that infects one in 5,000. So I know that there's a lot, a lot of awareness about this condition. So can you just tell us more about the condition and when you realize, actually, I haven't got my period yet, what's going on? Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on a podcast related to periods because <laughs> obviously my story is a little bit different. Um, so yeah, MRKH stands for Mayer Rokotansky Kusterhauser syndrome. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, and I was probably like 14, 15 when I started to like friends started their periods, other people at school were starting their periods, and I was a bit confused as to why mine wasn't starting. I'd developed breasts and had pubic hair and like was really hormonal, <laughs> as we all are as young teenagers. Um, and yeah, I think when it got to like late 15, 16, I was like, this is definitely about something's going wrong. And obviously, you sometimes do a bit of like self examination because we're all really curious as teenagers, like what is going on down there. Um, tried to have different sexual experiences with people when I was quite young um, and tried to actually have sexual intercourse, which didn't actually work when I was younger. So that was like quite traumatic. I smile about it now, probably out of awkwardness, but it was very like, yeah, a bit of trauma as a teenager trying to have experiences that others were having and then not being able to do certain things. And obviously we're taught in school that like sex is penis and vagina and that's how it goes so obviously when you're trying to do that and it's not working you're like what is going on um so yeah I went to the GP with my mum she just said that you're probably just a late bloomer which is what loads of people with MRKH here late bloomer or there's a thing that I googled because obviously I was furiously googling like what's going on with me called I think it's like imperforate hymen or something uh, so I thought oh, maybe my hymen's really thick and it's just in the way um which means that your period would be like backed up so it must be that it must be that um, and then went to the GP and they did a lot of like prodding and, and then they referred me. And I think the referral made you, made me immediately think something is bigger than just this. Because if it was a G, like normally when I was younger, a GP would figure it, figure it all out for you and they tell you what's going on and prescribe you with something or just say, yes, it's this. But 
because they didn't have the answer. I think I was then going into this, oh God, it's going to be something um, worse. And I was Googling again and I found conditions where like people had internal testicles and and quite stigmatised intersex and variations of sex development conditions. And I was sort of, and I think at that age when you are, I was a girl and identified as a girl, I was really dreading like this thing that was about to happen because I just started looking into loads of different stuff and I never came across MRK8. Um, but yeah, I went to Queen Charlotte's Hospital and there they diagnosed me with um, MRKH. So I'd never experienced period blood. Um, I should have said that at the beginning. That's a <laughs> short question. So I never experienced period blood. And um, yeah, the, the, the condition essentially means that I've got um, my uterus is completely underdeveloped. So they did like an ultrasound, um, which was quite weird at that age, being surrounded by all these pregnant people. And I'm just there. Like waiting to get my body checked out for other reasons. I did an ultrasound and my uterus was, they said it's like tiny remnants of uter- uterine tissue, but it's non-functional, non and it hadn't developed fully at all. So I do have ovaries and I had presence of ovaries and I do have um, female chromosomes. And yeah, but the, the vagina, sorry, is, is shorter and under, I've said this so many times, I always say it like backwards and the wrong way around. <laughs> the vagina, the, yeah, my vagina was, essentially much shorter than the average person's and it kind of stops at the top so I ovulate but there's no period blood in a shell. <laughs> and how long did it take for you to get this this diagnosis? It was everyone had quite different experiences in my case it was I guess quite a privileged experience if you can say that because I went to the GP and they referred me straight away to someone that they knew that was a specialist so I think for me it was soon as I'd gone to the GP, I was referred and, and in the right place. Um, whereas lots of people have lots of different experiences where they're not listened to or the GP that they, the particular GP they go to doesn't understand or they don't know where to refer them to. So they, I've got friends that it took months for them to figure out what it was. Um, yeah, I, I did feel like I had quite a different experience in that I, I went straight to Queen Charlotte to have a specialist team for MRKH and a specialist psychologist and uh, yeah, a gynecologist as well. So they were proper MRKH team of people. So I was in the right place quite quickly. And so once you got the diagnosis, was there, can you talk more about the, the emotional side of having this diagnosis, especially at that, at that age, what you had to reckon with um, and how you got on the other side of it? Yeah. So I think, like I said, with Having being at school and had sex education, everyone has this assumption of how everyone's bodies will develop and things will happen. And there's there's the stigma already for people that girls and people that have periods when they're younger. There's that that stigma has already exists for for us and for women's health and and for those that go through that. So I think it was like the opposite side of things. Where I heard the conversations where everyone was being a bit awkward and being kind of in their own stigma of starting periods, like my friend leaked once on the on the table at school and I had to help her out. So there were so many experiences and my friends had had so much trauma through having periods as teenagers and boys being like, um, and that is already traumatic in itself. And I think mine was just the other end of that where I wanted that because I wanted to be normal. And I hate that word, but I wanted to, at that age, that's how, where my mindset went, but I wanted to fit in with everyone else. Um, I wanted to be part of that conversation because not having them made me feel weird and like not part of that. And was I a girl? Was I, for me, periods was something that defined you entering womanhood. 
And because I didn't have that, I do a lot of poetry around that about the fact that we have this like milestone and like thing that says, right, this is, this is when you start being a woman. You grow boobs, you have your period. And not having that made me feel so like utterly different. And I think that's the one word that I've now, I feel empowered by, but being different back like when you're at school. And also there wasn't much social media. There was no one online talking about it. So after diagnosis, I was obviously searching at Mark AH. There was no one like there is now on Instagram going, being really proud of it and talking about it. And there might have been one or two advocates who I always will admire that went before me in this advocacy world of, of coming out essentially publicly. Um, but I was like sworn to secrecy. I was like, mum, do not tell anyone. My sister, my dad, do not tell anyone. Um, and obviously they, they can because they wanted to confide in people as well. But I was, didn't tell anyone for about eight years of my life. So just complete. Yeah. So. And it, people are quite shocked now because they see me online as this advocate and this really open person that talks about my like genitalia online, which is quite rare for people to do. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the secrecy thing for me was was just reflects the shame. Like I was so upset by it. I was I was actually with my dad when we originally found out, and like he was a bit like upset, and he's not very emotional person either because my mum just went. Oh, it's all right. It'll be, it'll just be something, um, that they'll send you home and it'll be fine. So she didn't realize like the extent of what, what was going to happen and always wished she was there. So, um, but yeah, so there's, 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 there was a lot of grief and thinking I had this body that had a womb that would have those experiences of pregnancy. And you find out almost when you're a child that you're not going to carry children. So for me, that was a huge thing as well. But then you've got the added stigma of this vag- vaginal, missing vagina almost and like the talking about sex that everything was like encompassed with fertility sex vaginas all were so young and I think I, I forget actually how big it was at that age to have it's all, it was one diagnosis but there was like a million different elements and layers to it that were just so complex to deal with um and I know that anyone dealing with infertility it's shit but I think when you're younger you don't know how to process emotions about fertility because I wasn't thinking about having babies and all of a sudden I was thinking about I'm going to have babies when I'm 16. Like, I know some people do, but, um, but I just wasn't in that place to have kids back then. So yeah, it was, it was, it was really, really hard. And I cried a lot. I had counseling. I was very depressed and down. And, um, but yeah, when I, sorry, I'm going on, 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 on. But <laughs> when I first told people I was about 23, 24, and it was actually meeting my current partner who I've been with for eight years, he, I told him, and he was like the first man that I told about this. And he just said, oh, it's all right. We can, you can talk to people about it. And I, from that point, I started doing this drunken reveals. Like, I haven't told you, but I've got this thing. Um, and as soon as I did that, I was like, oh, the reaction wasn't judgment. It was just care and like compassion. Obviously, people couldn't understand, but it was just, oh, I'm so sorry that you had the secret from everyone. Um, and I would cry a lot about the womb element when I was drunk and be like, I can't carry children. Never, ever said anything about the vaginal side of things. Um, and there was a lot of fear around the, like the saying the letters MRKH to anyone because Googling just meant the clickbait content of women with no vaginas. <laughs> and I didn't want to just have that as my thing because that was not what, yeah, I was ready to talk about. But yeah, the rest was history. I started going online. Talking and, too much. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's really interesting going from feeling a lot of shame and mm-hmm. hiding it for so long to then being so open and very inspiring and, you know, talking about your journey helps empower others. And 
I wonder what was a catalyst for you? You said your partner was the first person that, outside your immediate family that you told. Mm. What was the catalyst for you telling him? It's a funny story. We were still really close friends and not quite together yet, or we'd kind of been seeing each other for about a month or something really new. And there was a support group for MRKH and we became so close that I was like, do you want to come with me to this support group? But he didn't really know what it was. He knew that I couldn't get pregnant. Um, and I just said, I've got a fertility thing. And I used to cry about it all the time, usually after wine and drinking and, you know, the tears come out. I'd never go into what it was. I would just say, I've got like an underdeveloped thing. And I have irreg- I always used to say I had a regular period. So something I missed out was I always pretended to have a period at school. Um, I had like a big period reveal where I started with this friend. Anyway, that's another story. But yeah, just again, that just comes down to the fitting in and wanting to be part of everyone else's experience. Um, but yeah, so we, we would, I just said, do you want to come to this support group with me? But in the car, I was like, I need to tell him like what it is. Cause it's going to be really awkward if he's there trying to learn about it. And I don't, he actually doesn't know what this thing is. So he, I just said, like, again, it's like this disclosure drama. I was like, ah, oh my God, Chris, I need to tell you the full truth. And he was like, okay, like what's going on? And I just came out with this, uh, I was born with this and just went into the diagnosis. Like my vagina is short, like underdeveloped. And I always use language that I was more comfortable with. So I never said like I was born without. And I used to get really anxious about that term without, because that almost meant that it was a completely missing part of me. And I'd always use the term underdeveloped. And I think that was just a comfort thing where it kind of seems like it, it is, it did start. It just didn't carry on. Um, and it just made me feel a little bit more complete having felt so broken for so long. But, um, yeah. And then he just went, Oh, okay. No, that's fine. Don't, yeah, don't worry. So, okay. I think I built up so much more in me to say this vagina thing out loud, which is the first time I've done it to anyone, but then obviously family and, um, stuff like that. And he, yeah, he, his reaction was just kind of, I was like, do you not care? Because <laughs> it was so just like blunt. In a, in a nice way, because he obviously didn't really know how to react other than to make me know that it was okay to say, to talk about it. And that's fine. And it's normal when people go through it. Um, but yeah, so that was, that was me telling him. And then that, that, I guess, empowered me to talk to more people. And almost the coming out with MRKH was like an added level of my condition that people didn't know about because they'd only heard about the fertility side of things. And for me, the vagina element was so much more stigmatized in that it was very personal. Um, I went through a process of vaginal dilation when I was 16 as well, which was like really horrible and not horrible, but in, in the way that, again, that was why this was such a big secret for me. Cause I essentially made my own vagina through dilators, which are like clinical tubes. Um, and you kind of go up in size. You start small, similar to people with vaginismus, and then you go up and up and up. You're essentially stretching the vaginal muscle to become something that you can have sex because we're all taught that sex just means something going inside. So I was so desperate to make one so I could do all the things everyone else could do. Um, so I did that fairly young. Some people wait. And I, I was just like, no, I want to get it done. But that was equally something that I feel so terrified to talk about. Um, and then found Instagram and became an anonymous advocate. So I started posting anonymously about MRKH and um the rest was history. So I, yeah, and sort of became quite a big advocate and started doing events for people with MRKH. But yeah, I don't know what your <laughs> questions were. So for, for people who are, who are listening and maybe someone who's listening who has, who thinks they might have the condition and, and is not sure, 
Can you talk a little bit about diagnosis pathway? So yes, you say you were extremely fortunate in the fact that you went to, you got referred to Queen Charlotte's. They have a specialist unit there, but that isn't always going to be the case. So can you talk a little bit more about diagnosis pathways and for someone who does need to advocate for themselves a little bit more than 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 you may have had to definitely and it's so important because yeah there's there's so many kind of inequalities in healthcare and pe- that people face and this is corners of the world so like my podcast was essentially me trying to understand MRKH on different corners of the world and I know we're obviously more talking about the UK at the moment but there was yeah there's people all over that have there's doctors that have got no idea what this is or it's completely shamed and just you this is this is horrible you need to like leave those people that have been disowned by families because of MRKH due to lots of cultural stigma um and through yeah through my own podcast I've learned so much about the different experiences and mine did seem very much like GP hospital diagnose go deal with it and here's your dilators even being given dilators was a privilege in itself because people have to buy them themselves they don't know what they are they're not taught about them the doctors are too stigmatised to tell a young person to go and do that to help or the options. So the diagnosis pathway I guess, in the UK would be your, if you haven't started your periods, you're worried about this. One, it could be many a thing. There's lots of different people that have don't have periods for many reasons from premature ovarian insufficiency, POI, which affects um, young people as well. Um, different hormone issues like eating disorders. There's so many things that can impact periods. So one is that a lot of people see MRKHs online, go, no periods. And I've actually had a couple of messages from young people saying, I've got no periods. I think I've got this. And I think like we all do, you go down the Google path of it must be something like this. And we all find something that's more stigmatized or not, not worse in that sense, because there's people that do have those lived experiences, but more stigmatized than you think it's going to be, or it's going to be something that's this like on this level of the scale, but actually it's just this. But in my case, it was MRKH, but. Again, I thought it was a condition called complete androgen insensitivity syndrome, which is another condition. And I've got um, a girl with that in, in our sort of support circle for MRKH and differences in sex development because she has a very similar experience, chromosomes and internal kind of reproductive system different because she has internal testes that externally is typically developed as a female whatever that means like with in terms of breasts and um, pubic hair. and um, But yeah, so I think go to your GP and also bring information with you you've, that you've researched yourself because I think I've been to the GP before later on in life and they've said, oh, what's that? What's MRKH? And you almost have to keep... So nowadays, even though I got my diagnosis quickly, I do educate a lot of GPs and doctors about MRKH because they'll, they'll always say, when was your last period? Or <laughs> like this podcast, or when was... Um, yeah, when... Is there any possibility you could be pregnant? But that should all be on the system. Um, yeah, they they should refer you for an ultras- ultrasound or a transvaginal ultrasound if it's possible. Um, blood tests as well, just for, for, for chromosomes and just sort of checking all of that. And there is, like I said, Queen Charlotte's is like the UK centre for MRKH, but that's only because it's been quite rare. Um and again, not well known, but I think the more it's known, there's different hospitals. And I, again, can't remember the names of them around London and different areas who are becoming more specialists in that area. The Queen Charlotte's have a patient advocacy board. And I was on that one just to sort of talk about how they can almost like replicate their services because people are coming down from like literally like Scotland to come to England to go to 
Queen Charlotte's just because there's nowhere else that provides what they provide. So I think their service, there's a lot of work that the NHS needs to do to replicate that, even though it's, so the numbers of their market is one in 5,000 um, people born female. So if that service was replicated, but in just, a, I don't know, like a smaller scale in different like areas, which is starting to be, then, then people will have that same care. Um, but yeah, ultrasounds. And then I think getting the diagnosis of MRK should come with added support. So it needs to be, you have got this condition and obviously there's, there's ways that they can explain it, which can be a little bit less blunt. Some people have had really awful experiences with how they've been given the information, just be a letter or just being told and then not talked to afterwards. But from my experience, the care that Queen Charlotte's provide was you go in, you meet the gynecologist, you meet the nurse. I stayed in the hospital for three nights to do vaginal dilation so they could show me how to use dilators, which was horrible experience, but made it so supported by them. And, and you know that you're doing it right and you understand the um, what you want out of that situation. Um, and they also provided psycholog- psychologist as well. So you, you, you could put counselling in through this MRKH, almost like team. So there was a counsellor. Um, a specialist nurse and a gynecologist, a doctor that uh, was there and understood MRKH inside out, to put it, yeah, in <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's, and yeah, it's, it's, it's so hard, isn't it? Because I think I know how to advocate for myself now, having become an advocate for MRKH, but it's so hard to know what path people are going to go down. Like the, I, I know a young girl who was 15 messaging saying she was going to doctors and they weren't referring her and she had to really fight to get referred to Queen Charlotte's. But we were all saying, this is the hospital, this is where you need to get to. And they were just like, no, you can't go there. We've referred you to guys or whatever. And then there they were saying, oh, can you come in for some genetic tests? We're really interested in this. And just saying stuff that was really unemotional just because they were interested in it. So I think, yeah, it's, it's just knowing where to go. But I think that's where the peer support is a huge part of MRKH because finding people that have got your condition near where you live. So I I started a WhatsApp group when I was like 24 and it's got like 80 people in there now from people in London that have all got MRKH and we and I do Christmas events and we do, you know, once a year we meet for Christmas, we do picnics in the summer. Um, so that's also been a huge part of it. And that's where I think people learn from each other because it's not just me, it's all of them have got different stories, how to advocate for themselves. Um, in that situation. And like I said before, I've got friends with MRKH that have had lots of added cultural stigma and never ever want to be in pictures, which is completely understandable because I never did either. And I think there's people that are scared of, of their condition being known. There's people that are scared of their own families. There's, there is people that, like I said, because of the inability to carry children and the expectation that they should be carrying children, that's also a, a huge thing. So I've had an experience where my Friends and family have been supported, stigmatized, but they support you. And I, and I still feel shame and stigma from it, but there's a support network and some people don't have that. So that's, yeah, it's sad, um, but true. Mm. So can you talk a little bit about the fertility side? Because as you say, without having a uterus, there is, you know, you won't be able to carry a child. And you're involved in a campaign, a surrogacy campaign. Um, to help close the fertility funding gap. Mm-hmm. So there's been a real journey that you've gone on in terms of your awareness, your acceptance levels, your advocacy. Um, the fertility side is a big part of it. So can you talk about your personal experience and then talk a bit more about the advocacy part of it? 
Mm, yeah, of course. Cool. So, yeah, fertility side of things, there's, um, sorry, my brain just went then. So I was thinking about womb transplants, but that's a whole other thing going on in the world. Um, but yeah, to talk about the surrogacy side more. So I think growing up, I've always gone down the, yeah, the kind of route in my own head, the route to parenthood in my own head. Cause I do want to be a mum, not obviously not all people do, which is fine as well. Um, I'd love to adopt. I hate the fact that anyone that can't carry children or that struggle with fertility is always just go and adopt, just adopt. There's so many kids that need you. And it's like, no, those kids need anyone, anyone that can reproduce and make babies or that's had their own babies can still adopt. So I think there's a huge stigma with that. Um, I've said stigma about a million times in this podcast. I feel like it's like my safe words. <laughs> um, there's a huge thing about people that, are, that have struggled with infertility from MRKH to the one in six other things that people go through with infertility, which is also equally like sad and, and horrible and traumatic for people. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a massive thing where people just say, just go and adopt. And I think there needs to be just more care around the fact that people that want to go down the roots of having their own biological children, it's not because they're selfish or in any way like self-obsessed or almost, I want to have my own babies. But I think it's just a natural thing to want. And I think that's okay. So even I've gone down this path of feeling weird that I actually just want to get my eggs out and have someone carry our baby just because it's ours when actually we could adopt, we could, we could, I don't know if things work in there with eggs and um, Chris's sperm and all that sort of stuff. We haven't even gone down the path of checking that out yet, but there's, we know that if it wasn't ours biologically that we would still love the baby the same. But I think there is like a desire to want to do that because we have got those parts, we hope. Um, so I think that, yeah, that's the first thing I wanted to say is just around there's a lot of expectation that if you can't carry, just don't bother. Just or if you can't have your own babies, just don't don't worry about it. And I've got a lot of gay friends as well, which almost makes me just feel part of that club of we're we're all going to have different alternative routes to parenthood. Like my best friends have just had a baby through sperm donor. Um, there's and my other best friends pregnant through that. I've got friends that are going to be going down the route of surrogacy or adoption. So it's actually quite nice to be in circles where it's normalised to have a different path. Everyone's path is equally as difficult and wonderful all rolled into one at the same time. Um, but it just makes you feel kind of part of the club. But yeah, so fertility-wise, so on, a, on a bit of a tangent about that, but the surrogacy side of things, it's for specifically for people with MRKH, I'm talking about that, it's rarely funded. So when I was younger, I just remember thinking, why do we have to pay like thousands of pounds to have babies? So many people have to do that. And I completely understand that there's so many inequalities in funding. Um, but specifically for MRKH, if we have ovaries and they're ov- and we're ovulating, because we do ovulate, so our my egg gets released and then just disappears, but it still like works. And a lot of like high percentage of people with MRKH can have their own biological children. Obviously, those that can't for other reasons, but that's separate to MRKH. Um, generally, ovaries are functioning with the diagnosis, um, and to have a surrogate, if you apply for funding and it's not it's not you carrying the baby, they see it as unethical. So it's a really strange way of thinking because surrogacy is legal. There's obviously legality surrounding it. It's a legal route to parenthood because you can have a surrogate. You can't pay a surrogate to carry your baby. You cover expenses and you can't advertise to be a surrogate. And equally, you can't um, go online and say you need a surrogate because that's kind of like advertising a um, like a role. Um, and it should just be like a mutual agreement um, because 
all of the guidelines and policies and they're called integrated care boards who actually make decisions about funding, which used to be clinical clinical commissioning groups, which are CCG. So there's lots of different places in different corners of the UK that make decisions separately for different people. Um, so it's it's a postcode lottery for everyone else, everyone that has infertility or that wants to go through IVF or is a same-sex couple or et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of different rules for different policies, but the one rule that seems to be consistent across all the policies across the UK is that they just don't fund anything if your end result is having a surrogate. So I think it's almost just like a ruled out option for anyone. And I don't, I don't, I think I only know one or two people that have appealed it and got funding based on the fact that they have, that the womb is absent is not something they can help. Um, this doesn't just affect MRKH, obviously. So this is anyone that doesn't have a womb in a couple or as a single person that wants to have a child. So same-sex couples that don't have a womb between them, men that don't have a womb between them, single person that has MRKH or something else, someone that's had a hysterectomy after gynae cancers um, or endometriosis, can't carry children. There's so many different reasons people may go down the route of surrogacy, which kind of normalises it as well. Um, but all of those people that need to know that surrogacy will be on the map. So there was an amazing campaign. I don't know if you heard, I can't remember their name now. Um, it was a lesbian couple and they did an amazing campaign to get RUI inequalities kind of spoken about because um, it's something that same-sex couples and people that need to go through RUI had to self-fund. So it's almost like a tax on them that because they couldn't do it naturally, they had to self-fund this part of their journey just because they were, and it's like that's a that's discrimination against that particular group of people. And that they did an amazing job at getting um, it looked at. So lots of the policies are now reviewing the, the RUI and, and, and starting to help fund parts of it for people before they do it. Um, but yeah, again, with surrogacy, it's still like behind in that sense. It's not there's a there's a government website that lists all of the integrated care boards which decide on funding and have different policies. And then it sort of says what parts they fund. So it says RUI. Uh, can't remember all the list of things like the words for it, but there's a list of things on there. Um, and surrogacy still is not on there. So that's kind of where we come together. So I teamed up with MRKH Connect, who are the UK MRKH charity. And I work with Charlie, who's the director of that charity, loads and loads of different things. And she sponsors our events and it's a really nice kind of like, um, peer support uh, working group. Um, and Charlie works closely with Queen Charlotte's Hospital, where I was diagnosed. They've got a team there who are, um, quite supportive there's only so much they can do with with the campaign because the nhs a lot of the time can't really get involved and things like that but they can give advice and sort of and be a kind of brand support for that as well um so a lot of their support group meetings surrogacy and inequality and funding is spoken about loads so we just got together and said let's do this ages ago i made the survey and never did anything with it so we've kind of redeveloped the survey to learn about different people's funding experiences um, but we've now partnered with different people, so sisters um, who work with uh, black and vain women and people from marginalised backgrounds. So they support a lot of people going through reproductive um, struggles. And Neelam is amazing, so we're working with her on this as well. Um, Endometriosis Foundation have just joined as a partner. Hopefully the Eve Appeal, we're sort of in chats with them about stuff. Um, and Fertility Network UK, and then there's a page called Your Pace DSD. Anyway, there's lo loads of different partners, which I'm trying, trying to remember now and not wanting to not name anyone. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so we're all just going to, we're getting together to regularly post about it. The survey is the main thing to understand people's funding application journeys. Um, the next step will be a petition to try and get 
even like, because we've got to be realistic about the changes we can make. And I think even just to get surrogacy on the map for the government to kind of recognize in those policies, which aren't. So we're actually physically going through the policies ourselves, um, kind of doing the work for them. And then we're just saying, look, here's this information. Please, can you make this known to, to your like resource? But yeah, in a nutshell, that is what we're doing at the moment. So it's really exciting and it, it's, yeah. It's a it's an amazing sort of team to be in, and it's just started. Really, like we've only just kind of launched the survey, and the next steps are storytelling and education and webinars and um, lots of different people involved in that. So yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, <laughs> but from something shit, it's yeah, it's exciting now. <laughs> what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were first diagnosed with MRK? Do you know what I ask this question to everyone that has MRK and I don't know if I've ever asked. <laughs> so now I'm like, oh shit. Um, because there's so many good answers that come up. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. Oh, and I'm like, oh, what do I say to myself? Um, so much easier to listen to other people talking. And then when it's yourself, it's, oh, God. I, I'd like to tell my younger self that you're never alone because being diagnosed and not wanting to talk about it made me feel so isolated. But there's so many of us out there that have MRKH that have care and love and support to give. Some of my closest friends now are, are people that I've met that have MRK8. I couldn't live without them now. And I think everyone that has a diagnosis in any way, shape or form when they're younger, the one thing to do sooner rather than later, because it took me a while to get into that mode of talking to other people, is find your like team, like find your people that understand you because you will always have close friends and they will all like and everyone will be going through something. Um, my brother, for example, was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, which is like a Crohn's disease almost when he was younger. And it just made me realize that so many different people have different experiences they don't talk about or they don't really seek a support network for. Um, and I had friends that had lost parents, for example, when they were younger, that were grieving. I had friends that were going through loads of different things when they were younger, but this was just my thing that I'd gone through and amongst other life situations, but just a thing that was really, really in need of support. So just find your support network because as soon as you find that one person that understands you, not understand you fully, but that can relate to your experience, that's when you kind of go, ah, like it's like a relief. And I just remember having my first dinner with four of us with MRKH and the openness was something I'd never had before. I could just go, oh, did you go through this? Did you have dilator? Did you have this? Oh my God, what did they say to you? And that feeling of, it was like excitement over something so traumatizing. I can't even explain it. It was like we had so much to talk about and ask about and there was no stigma in the room around the vagina element, the womb element, the not being able to carry children, the grief, like the, it was just, excuse me, my voice, it was just so open. And yeah, so that's, I think my biggest bit of advice would just be find your people and find your support network because they are out there and it's always going to be someone that you can confide in fully. And I mean like fully confide, not just... (laughs) Talking to any mate, but yeah, that that would be my advice. This is what scares a little bit to talk mm-hmm. about your poetry. So you're a spoken word poet, and I had the pleasure of hearing one of your poems at an event we were both at last month. Can you talk a little bit about you poetry as a creative me- creative medium for you, and why that is something that you've pers- chosen to pursue? Um. It's an interesting one because I've only just identified as a poet. I always just used to write stuff and I've done, I've done a few open mic nights and, but that was, yeah, one of the first time in like a, cause I've done it at, um, 
charity events and like smaller events, but that was the first time in like a commercial setting that I've performed poetry and it was a, it was such an amazing experience. But it was so good to be alongside you as well on the panel. Um, but yeah, it's something that I've always enjoyed doing. At my granddad's funeral when I was like, I think I was like 16, 17 or something, I wrote a really long poem and I performed it at the funeral. Not performed, to perform at a funeral? Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Spoke it at the funeral um, and that was the first time I'd written something and said it out loud to people. And then I stopped doing it for a while, but I've always loved like journaling and writing and just scribbling little quotes and like making quotes about life and MRKH. And it start, it really started when I started doing the MRKH advocacy because even that wasn't poetry, it was creating content that was words that were going to mean something to someone else, like no womb, no less, like all of that womb, no less of this. And and just so many little kind of, you know, like the Instagraphic quotes. And I got so obsessed with writing them and making them and sometimes making them rhyme. Um, and then I published, not published, but posted a um, blog, which had my poetry about MRKH on it. I just find it so cathartic because I find even this sometimes in podcasts, because I find it easier to interview other people and not be interviewed. But this I find hard. I find talking about it openly, even though I've done it so many times, quite difficult. But when you're doing it in a way that's creative and you've written something that's almost like how powerful like jumpy rhythm like uh, rhythm of your story it just flows easier and you're kind of performing it in a way that's your your vulnerability kind of not goes out the window but it's kind of over here and you can just speak your truth but through a medium that you've written something that you know that you really like um and you've got it there and you've got your script almost um be yeah, a writing poetry i love poet like writing prompts and i think that I've done quite a few writing workshops. So during lockdown, me and Ali Hensley, who's another writer with MRKH, got together and we hosted like a Zoom writing workshop every couple of weeks. And we had people from, it was from Asia, but like India. There's people from literally corners of the world that have never even spoken about MRKH to anyone coming to these Zoom calls. because It was like a global, um, almost like a global impact thing where you see it online and it's lockdown and everyone's in weird like um, corners of the world doing yeah, not being able to do anything. And we had like 30 people coming on and we just gave writing prompts sort of relevant to infertility and MRKH. And people would just sit there and write poetry and stories and letters. And it was so nice. Like it was like really, really like heartwarming. Um, and I've done infertility writing workshops and stuff for um, people with MRKH and outside of MRKH. And I think for me, I find writing quite easy. So I can just sit, I get creative block, but I could just write all my notes all the time, phone notes, writing poetry, writing things. Some of it don't, doesn't go anywhere. I just keep it. I wrote poetry to perform at open mic nights, but I think everyone with a like writing prompt can really delve into their experiences and emotions and feelings so much. So yeah, that's kind of, but again, I don't really call myself a spoken word artist because I just, I'm just someone that enjoys poetry and I've just started reading it to other people. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I I think it's so interesting when people use creativity to express what they're experiencing whether it be um some like their with regards to their health or personal experiences. I think, you know, creativity is just such a anyone can be creative and I think that's when what something that people don't realize, you know, there's creativity through cooking. It's, you know, it could be painting. It, it could be through gardening. There, we're all, we can all be creative. And I just think it's so beautiful how poetry is a really a medium that really resonates for you. 
The last thing I want to ask you about is vagina fest. Can you say more about that? Yeah, of course. I was going to say as well as poetry, I'm, I love painting. So I'm like, just love it all. Just anything cathartic and like mindful. And I love doing canvases and like textured art. I've got so much crack that isn't online that I do behind the scenes. Like it's, it's chaos. Anyway. Um, yeah. And it, just also for anyone listening, do tap into because a lot of people, a lot of my friends say, I'm not creative. I'm not creative. Everyone, like you said, is creative because everyone's got something that, that could come out of their being, be it a painting or this or abstract art or a piece of poetry. If they were just given a prompt to do that, um, which is why workshops can be so empowering. Cause yeah, anyway, um, vagina fest. So I met Emily, who is a spoken word artist. And I don't know why she's like, Alon, she's amazing spoken word. She does like all poetry performances. She's been doing it for a long time. Um, really inspiring writer. And she performed at an online event that I hosted with another amazing creative. Um, so many creatives called Femigami, who does like origami um, vulvas. So like we teamed up, I did like poetry side of things and the storytelling and Emily was doing um, origami and then other Emily came on to perform. So I just said, I'd love you to come and perform at this event. And then we then, me and Emily, uh, poet Emily, got together and sort of created a, a an event more focused on the storytelling and poetry side of things called the Vagina Fest. Um, and yeah, we just got together and just said we'd love to start with like an open mic night. Um, but it became quite big. So we ended up thinking it's called the Vagina Fest. We don't want to have an open mic night. You know, people just walk in and they sign up on the night and then you have like 10 people talking about one thing, like their periods, for example. It would be kind of like, oh, quite repetitive. So we ended up doing like an application process where people would apply to perform at the event. And we got so many in um, of people just with stories to tell from vaginal mesh experiences to stories, to poems, to yeah, performers. Um, so we were like really excited. Like, oh my God. And we have to obviously had to go through the process of having 10 people perform and then saying there'll be some space left because we wanted a variation of stories and it couldn't just be 10 people, 10 white women talking about endometriosis, for example. It had to be um, diverse and, 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 and yeah, and I think intersectional was one of our biggest things. You didn't have to be someone with a vagina to come to the festival. You didn't have to be a woman to come to the festival um, or perform at the festival. We did have a couple of guys actually apply. In, in the end, they didn't end up performing because we had so many different other people that we wanted to amplify. But um, it would have been interesting to hear some, some stories. Anyway, some stories. We, we held our first event at the Vauxhall Tavern. Uh, we have sold like a hundred tickets. We raised some money for um, what we could because we were like obviously wanting to pay our headliners and pay our acts as well. Um, we raised some money for a couple of different charities on that night and it was amazing. We had like my really good friend Shard, like one of my best school friends doing, they're like a drag king. So they were like uh, almost like a gender bending drag performer. Um, so Shard gets bearded up and does like an amazing body positive uh, and also really meaningful like campaign performances. So, um, yeah, there's those amazing people we had. We've had drag queens, kings, um, as like headline acts. We've had Holly McNish on our first, sorry, our first virtual event when like we sold about 450 tickets. That was for the Eve appeal and at Mark H Connect. So it started virtually and then we took it like to the stage. Um, and virtually we had Holly McNish. I don't know if you know Holly, but she's an amazing poet, Miss Yankee, who's amazing. So we had all these really cool headliners performing and the stories were just some of them were hilarious some of them were really like 
vulnerable and trauma traumatic, but it was such a safe space of storytelling. And just this word vagina, we knew that like there's obviously the word vulva should be used more for externally, but it wasn't about the word. It was about the hidden stigma stigma of the word and the fact that the vagina is the hidden body part, which is actually inside. We actually thought that reminds us more of storytelling and the fact that this body part's hidden. Our stories are hidden. Um, and it was just about saying the word out loud, also educating people on what that word means and what it doesn't mean, because obviously vulva vagina, different things. So yeah, so we've got we, we then we did another event um uh, yeah, a year later, and we had we sort of expanded it because again, I love art and all things art. So we had like a market stall of artists, as well as the performance side of things. So it was like the market was there and the performers were here. We need to like test it a bit more and do it next year with that kind of blend of things. Um, so we're hoping to that it grows. But yeah, we it's it's amazing, and Emily's amazing to work with. Like we just we want to do it once a year. So we all, we have that like month where we just nonstop talking to each other and planning it and doing Zoom meetings and calls. And um, so, yeah, that's Badge Fest, but it's gonna, we're, we're going to do it again at some point. So 2024, we had a bit of a break because it is quite overwhelming um, on top of uh, I work in social housing by day and this is all like weekend, <laughs> weekend okay. stuff. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's yeah. Badge Fest. Yeah, you, you're uh, so interesting. You've got so many things and you're, going on in your advocacy work is incredible. What thought do you want to leave listeners with? Well, that's a hard one, Anise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's so hard, isn't it, to make like, those powerful statements. Um, I just want to be really honest and say that you're, again, it's like this you're not alone thing, but your story, anything that you've been through is like a catalyst for change because MRKH is just my little I know quite big for me, but just my little corner of the internet talking about being born with it, it's been born with that. But from telling my story online, actually just talking about it and like going public, I've had friends contact me that I've not spoken to for years saying, I've got this, I've got endometriosis and your page really helped. Got friends with PMDD, which has really impacted some of my friends' mental health and, um, and hormones and experiences and they felt suicidal from conditions like this and it's that there's always going to be someone going through what you're going through and talking about it and telling your story is not shameful or self-obsessed and being online I think also yes I think storytelling can be so powerful so just I think sorry my brain's gone now but to take away I think to tell your story can be such an empowering thing. And it doesn't mean you have to go online and talk about it, but you'd be so surprised about the amount of people in your life that are around you from family members that sometimes just sit around a dinner table and don't say anything personal or don't talk about personal experiences to cousins that you've like, I've got um, people that I know that have gone through miscarriages that I just never would have known if I wasn't this open. So I just think people people have that stigma between each other about talking about things and being open. And until they sort of see someone else doing it or hear someone else doing it, that's when they go, oh, I, I've got a story. I've got something to tell. So um, when you feel safe to do so and it doesn't have to be public, just write your story down, write a blog about yourself. It can literally just be for yourself, but write about your story because writing it out can make you feel so sort of, yeah, just empowered by your own story. And again, that for me meant being completely anonymous. And I started anonymously, never planned to be LMA online with MRK, just wanted to be this little advocate that was behind. Uh, no one knew who I was. 
Yeah. Um, but when I wrote a blog, and even though it was anonymous, I was like, I've written, I've written my experience out onto something, and someone might read this. Um, so you do, you never have to be public, be an advocate, and that's the other message I want to give because there's a lot of people with MRKH who feel like that advocacy is less because they're not the forefront and they're not showing their face. But there's people that advocate behind the scenes, and they're so powerful. So you can be an advocate for whatever you're going through, and you don't have to be public about it, and you can change someone else's life and your own at the same time um where can people find you um i've got too many instagrams so i'll just i'll just give one but my uh, the vava womb instagram is at vava womb underscore um and vava womb.com as well so yeah thank, thank you, you so, so much, much for having me yeah thank you so much for coming on the podcast um yeah thanks thank you for sharing your story thank you for having me it's amazing thank you so much lenise and you're doing amazing work as well so thank you thank you For more inspiring conversations, head over to periodstorypod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you want help with your menstrual or hormone health, email me on hello at eatlovemove.com to set up a free 30-minute hormone health review. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tag us, come say hi, and send in your requests for who you'd like to see on the show on Instagram and Twitter on at periodstorypod or email us at hello at periodstorypod.com. I'm Lenise Brothers and you've been listening to Period Story. Thank you so much for listening.